Hey, welcome back everybody, it's your boy Six Pack Lapidat, and today I'm going to be doing this one solo, but uh, we got a special guest, it is Andrew Herbert, or you might know him on Instagram as Andrew the Love Bug, guy's an absolute beast, um, training at a boss barbell, coached by none other than Dan Green himself, now if you've seen Andrew on Instagram, literally looks like Mar from Sin City. Just an absolute monster of a man. Um, lifts in the 242 weight class, which is uh, for our European friends, I believe that's uh, 110 kilo weight class. And um, he must cut some massive weight to make 242 because he is an absolute monster of a man. Um, all types of huge. A little bit of background on Andrew though. So Dan Green for the longest time was uh, the 242 god. I mean, he had the world record total. Um, literally, he was the man at 242 pounds. And uh, he took some, I mean, he took some injuries here and there. And he hasn't really been back on his A game since. And uh, a group of contenders have really, like, blossomed. And, uh, well, it happened in powerlifting in general. But particularly in the 242, um, none other than gentlemen like Larry Wheels, uh, T, T. Papuya we had on here as well. And um, one sec here, I believe. Yeah, and John Rivas. And I hope, hopefully I'm saying his last name properly. Um, T. Papula and John Rivas also. So John actually broke Dan Green's 242-pound uh, overall world record. And then Dan Green's disciple, Andrew Herbert, was gunning to get it back and bring it back to Boss Barbell. Um, and he went toe-to-toe at Boss of Bosses 3 with none other than Larry Wheels just for a little bit of drama there, trying to bring back the world record to Boss Barbell. It happens to be at Boss of Bosses. Dan Green is coach. Dan Green's promoting the show, and they're going for the world record. And who shows up gunning for the same world record? Larry fucking Wheels. Now that's a hell of a tall order if you're trying to hunt down your boy's record back and Larry Wheels says, guess what? I also want that world record. You know, of all the people to be gunning for the same prize as you, that's the wrong cat. You know, that's the wrong cat you want to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with. At this point, um, Larry had been undefeated and uh, I believe nobody has defeated him since, but on that day, Andrew... Uh, Beat Larry Wheels, took the world record, and um, and I believe uh, it was broken not long after that by T. Papula. And if you missed the T. Papula podcast, we had T on here, and he was chasing that world record as well. Another phenomenal story when he's gunning for this world record. I mean, he had been attempting it like four times in a row. Another great episode. But yeah, the, it is thick. The competition, uh, literally and figuratively, in that 242 weight class, when you got guys like Andrew Herbert, Larry Wheels, John Rivers, T. Papula, I mean, Dan Green in there. If, if ever he gets back on track without those injuries, look out. Um, so, yeah, uh, I, I can't wait to have him on here. We got tons of questions. So, we're going to get it popping right off the bat, and let's give him a ring. <laughs> so, we have Andrew, the love bug, aka Andrew Herbert. How you feeling? I feel pretty good. Good stuff, good stuff. We just gave, I, in the intro, I just gave a little bit of background there. Um, the 242 weight class in the last couple of years has been really popping. Some huge names of big contenders, particularly going for uh, the world record. 
Um, I know we had T. Papuya, Papula on here um, last year talking about when he was gunning for that world record. You got names like yourself, uh, Larry Wheels, you know, and uh, are you still on there, Andrew? Oh, yeah, yeah. sorry. I, I was just messing around Clint. Sorry. <laughs> That's all right. We, <laughs> we, I just lost the video. That's all. Yeah, so like I said, we had some big names in there, and then obviously Dan Green himself with that world record. Um, so when John took that world record, was it kind of one of the goals to bring that world record back to Boss Barbell? Uh, absolutely, yeah. So, you know, I, uh, I've been training, when that happened, that was um, in the summer of 2016. And so I've been at Boss for uh, a couple of years at that point. And um, so I still remember when, when John broke it, uh, it was at uh, USPA Nationals, I believe it was. And... Um, you know, and so I definitely wanted to, to bring it back, bring the record back home. So, well, I would, I, you know, it's in terms of like, um, you know, storyline, movie quality stuff. You have, so your coach, it was Dan Green's record, and then John took it. And then obviously he's, not only was it his record, it's that boss of bosses of all, of all the meat <laughs> show and he's holding. And then who else shows up and says, guess what? I think I also want that record, but Larry fucking wheels. That's a, that's a tall order, my friend. When, when you want something and Larry Wheels also wants it, you're going to have yourself a toe-to-toe battle. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, that meet was was crazy in a lot of ways because, um, you know, Dan competed uh, 220 in that meet, and and that's also the first time Yuri Belkin came to Boston Bosses. And, and Kevin Oak was there, uh, too. So I believe... Both Kevin and Yuri broke the 220 uh, total world record as well in that meet. So it was, yeah, it was pretty wow. crazy. Yeah, I mean that's that's some crazy competition right there. Those are that's the best of the best in the world. Those names. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So it's awesome to be on the same platform with them. Yeah, to say the least. So how did you end up? When did you start weightlifting? Um, so it's really been almost a lifelong thing for me. Um, you, know, you call it. An obsession, maybe. Um, you know, I was, you know, pretty young. I, you know, probably watching you know, Arnold movies like everyone did growing up, and yeah. and I just, uh, I was really, you know, I mean, in, even in PE class and like kindergarten, first grade, you know, I, I like to do push-ups and stuff like that. And so, uh, and I was actually eight years old when I kind of been talking to my dad about I want to lift weights and stuff like that. And so he went to. Sears, which is like a, a closed down uh, store now, but uh, got a couple dumbbells for me, and and so I used those, and was always doing calisthenics, and and then uh, a few years later, uh, my dad started taking me with him to the YMCA, where he was getting back in shape, and so I'd work out there, and then high school came along, where you know I had access to a weight room at school, I used that, and yeah, so it's really been, it's definitely the longest running uh, interest I've ever had in my life yeah like your whole life like you were like eight years old noodling around with dumbbells trying to get something going yeah yeah i mean it's like and you can see it in a lot of things like i used to like draw you know like like pencil drawings you know as a kid and like i would draw like biceps and you know yeah. muscle stuff like and i had you know i mean i had the gi joes you know and in those i was always a fan of like the the big strong like like toys and so yeah it's kind of all-encompassing yeah. thing for me infatuated with strength so yeah. um when you were growing up was there other sports that you played first oh yeah so um 
my first, I guess, sports phase was baseball. Um, you know, I started playing little league and, uh, yeah, I think I was about eight around the same time. Yeah. I started playing little league and I was really into that and, you know, started collecting baseball cards. That was a big thing then too. And so like, I, uh, you know, around that same time, yeah, around that same time. So I'm from San Francisco and so the San Francisco giants and then just across the water, the Oakland A's were both doing great. And actually, so 1989, which I was eight years old then, um, they, uh, the A's and the Giants were in the World Series together. So it was called the Battle of the Bay. Uh, I had a huge poster in my room about that and stuff like that. That's also when the, the big earthquake hit, too, oh, wow. <laughs> during, during the World Series game. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I was, baseball was that kind of first thing for me. Then uh, basketball, actually, was the next phase. And I was obsessed with Michael Jordan. I had, you know, Michael Jordan posters. and Everybody you know, was in the 90s, eh? Oh, yeah. Was, yeah I mean, was, yeah. it's hard not to, you know, just get really into that. I mean, and the Bulls in general. I mean, they were just so amazing. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, and then with basketball, this is around when I was like maybe 12, 13. Um, I had this group of guys that we always played basketball together. And... They all had growth spurts one summer, and I didn't. Ah, you're the one guy who didn't. How tall are you? I'm 5'11". Okay, so you're not short. No, no, yeah. So I was in – it was just a matter of, like, I was a later bloomer than them. Like, it pretty much all equalized eventually. But, like, when they shot up, you know, two to three inches more than I did, you know, suddenly it got a little – and, of course, the development of being just, you know, stronger, you know, the hormones kicking in earlier, like, it just made it kind of, it was kind of disenchanting to me um, to try to play with them at that point. Um, so I kind of drifted away from basketball. Yeah, it's and, a, yeah. It, that's like the type of age when you start getting into the high school where, um, I mean, you have some, some kids will like, I remember from grade eight to grade nine, you don't see somebody for the summer all of a sudden, you see him in grade nine, you're like, holy shit, what happened to oh, this yeah. kid? He's like, he's like six inches taller. And then some kids, some kids are shaving in grade nine. And it's like, oh, holy, nuts. next to a kid who isn't going to hit puberty for another two years, really. So it's like a weird mismatch. Like you said, by the time you're a young adult, it's all worked out. Everybody <laughs> is where they kind of is. But there are some yeah. weird points, man, where like, especially if you're, you're trying to get into some sports, some team sports, you can have it pretty rough if you're if you're a late bloomer, you know. Absolutely. You, I, I had a buddy who was like six foot, two hundred fifty pounds, and shaved, and it was fucking like grade nine and ten, and it's like, dude, holy smokes, you know. But uh, yeah. But at the same time, I think there's like there's benefits both ways because you know everybody knows like the whole story about girls who are like super attractive when they're younger and they end up having like really shitty social skills because they never had to develop that because everything was, everyone catered to them just because they were beautiful when they were younger. Yeah. Um, it's the same thing. I think sometimes with guys is, and I've seen this, you know, the ones who really developed early. So of course they're dominating everybody on the playground, dominating, but then, you know, everyone catches up and those people who caught up were, you know, grinding, yeah, when they when this person was just kind of chilling, and they catch up, and it's and they you know all of a sudden they blow past them. You know yeah. what I mean? So in all aspects of life, I mean I think to an extent, um, yeah. If you can't like in terms of dominating in social situations, you walk in a room, you're a big guy, 
it's easier when you start talking, people listen. You're a smaller guy, you gotta be persuasive. You actually gotta know people. You gotta use humor, you gotta, you know. Oh, yeah. It's, it's a little different. So yeah, you have to learn how to work a room a little bit. And then, uh, yeah, even on like a physical standpoint, um, a lot of times they say people, when it comes easy to you for sports, you're not used to grinding as hard. So when things, the wheels fall off and you find yourself in a tough situation, how many, in all sports, we know those sports stars that were like, it always came easy through the basketball star who yeah. in high school was killing it, hits the pros, hits a bad skid. It's hard to make him grind because he's never had to grind. And when he works hard, he'll complain because he thinks he's working hard. It's like, dude, all these guys around you probably work way harder because they got to kill themselves just to get here. Whereas you could skate by and get there, you know? So Absolutely. It builds character. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I uh, my my main sport ended up being wrestling, and I wrestled in college. I knew that about you from your Instagram. Yeah, and so like I had, you know, just to go along with the the same point. Like I had teammates who were, you know, multiple time state champions. You know, they almost never ever lost a match in their life. You know, and but you hit college, you're in Division One level, and you're getting your ass kicked. You know, and so and I saw with these kids sometimes they absolutely fizzle out because. That's a real. That's a real gut check, you know, yeah. basically. And so. Um, and sometimes when you're, um, like, when you don't start out like that, when you start out having to grind through it, you're kind of used yeah. to being your ass kicked. You're kind of used I've, to like getting doubted. So if it happens, like, I've been here, I've been here, I'll work through it. You know, your, your heart's a little bigger, right? Absolutely, absolutely. So you played. Uh, so how competitive were you with? Because you're saying some of these guys were winning, like, because. For pe- people listening who don't know, um, some high school states, like in terms of wrestling, are uber competitive. You know? Yeah. So this was in, uh, this is California then? Yeah, yeah, so California. So, I mean, the way it works, like, California is just a matter of, of sheer numbers. I mean, there's just so many more athletes of any sport in California than any other state mm-hmm. that you know, if you are one of the best basketball players in California, that means you're really good. You know what I mean? Like if you're one of the best basketball players in Rhode Island, I don't know. Um, you know, maybe you're good, maybe you're not. But like, so and same with wrestling, like there's areas of, like actually where I grew up, wrestling was not big at all. There was, you know, it just wasn't, wasn't big, but then you go to central Valley or down the San Diego area. There's, there's areas where wrestling's huge. And so <clears throat> there's just so many kids and a couple of that with the state tournament is some states have like m- several different state tournaments, like division A, division AA, division AAA. California of all places has only one. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so you got basically this meat grinder of, you know, more kids than anywhere else competing for this tiny little spot, you know? So at that point it's, um, you know, the California state champs are tend to be really good. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, yeah. For people listening, California, I think, has the same population as Canada. Well, yeah, nations like California yeah. is like a, you're you're state champ in California. That's like a national champ in a lot of different places of the world. Like Canada is not a small nation. Right? No, no, not that at all. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, California. I don't know, it still is, but at one point, the state itself was like the fifth largest economy yeah. in the world. So yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's tough goings. It's really tough goings to get to the top of the food chain there. So, how far did you pursue it in high school and then in college with uh, wrestling? So I, uh, you know, and kind of ties in with the earlier thing. I was kind of a late bloomer with regards to actually wrestling too. You know, I didn't get involved in it until high school 
Whereas, you know, most of the top guys start a lot younger than that. But like I said, where I'm from, it's just, it's not a big thing. There's not a lot of really no youth programs or anything like that. No, no one even like encouraging you to do it. You know I mean? Mm-hmm. The, and it's the same, that's the same in a lot of the urban areas. Like you'll see the San Francisco kids, the Oakland kids, the Los Angeles kids typically all just get their ass kicked at the, <laughs> the beer meets, you know, and it's the, it's the rural, you know, it's the farm boys basically uh, from the Valley and, and stuff like that, that really, uh, dominate so i mean i was i did okay but i was nothing special in high school um you know i got by i'm just being you know like stronger than just about everybody um and you know just being aggressive like i mean i could i had the i guess the grit you know like i'd work hard but like not a lot not a ton of finesse i mean um i wasn't like slick or you know amazingly quick like some of the other folks so i didn't you know, I wasn't like highly recruited at all uh, out of high school. Uh, I made most of my development in college. And then, uh, so how, what college did you go to? And then wrestling in college, how did that go? So I went to two colleges. So the first, right out of high school, I went to Bucknell University, which is in central Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, to tie in earlier, I, I believe Pennsylvania on the whole produces the best high school wrestlers. Uh, I think that's the, the best uh, wrestling state in the U.S. Oh. Uh, and and so I was there. I was there for two years. Um, it was, I had a really good time. Learned a lot uh, wrestling wise. Um, and but they cut the wrestling program, which is kind of an issue that's been going on across the U.S. for several decades. Um, why why would they do law. that? Sorry, go ahead. Why would they do that? Because it's wrestling. You know, it's like part of it, you know, it's... Yeah, well, so it's it's this law called Title IX, which was, I think, enacted in 1972, and it's all about uh, kind of gender equality on college campuses. And, and the intent of that law is good, because, you know, when it came into play, there were a lot less opportunities for, for females than for males in a lot of different aspects of, of extracurricular activities in, in colleges. Um, but unfortunately, since then, it's really gotten kind of just hammered on in terms of athletics and not anything else. You know, like it's not in theater, or drama, or dance, you know, a lot of other things where there actually are more females doing it than males. They don't seem to really worry about that. But in sports, they do. And there's this thing called proportionality, which is the, the way for colleges to demonstrate compliance with the Title IX law. And that's what is, that's the, the bad part. Proportionality says that, okay, if you've got, you know, 50% male students, 50% female students, you need to have 50% male athletes, 50% female athletes. Hmm. And that, that sucks for several reasons. One, because most schools have a football team and a football team is huge. It's like about a hundred people and there's not a female equivalent. So that automatically offsets it against, you know, all the other male sports. Mm -hmm. In addition, you know, I mean, it's just, the fact of the matter is, I mean, males are in general more involved in sports than females are. I don't think that's really a sexist statement. I think Mm -hmm. it's, you know, I think it's somewhat biological. Sure, it's somewhat cultural, but I mean, you know, you, like, I, I, I just, you know, it just seems like the way it is. I mean, well, if, um, you, if you think about it, like there's a reason why the WNBA has got no numbers 
if women, and there's more women out there than there is men, but women won't support women's sports by watching it. Like if women watch the WNBA, they'd be fine, but yeah. they don't. So they and so there's more men watching these sports. So then you have to rely on. So yeah, exactly. It's just for some reason it's just the interest, and it is what it is, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's. I think you know, in this day and age, there's. Uh, I guess kind of a movement to uh, ignore like basic biology when it comes oh, to yes, that stuff. Oh yes, sir. Oh yes, sir. You know, sure. and, and it reminds me of. You know, my parents, um, you know, they, when I was older, they told, I have a sister, so it's me and my sister, and they, I guess my parents tried to raise us as kind of quote-unquote gender neutral as possible in the first few years, but I remember my dad would tell me at one point we were out camping, and, you know, he looked over, and my sister was playing with her, like, My Little Ponies and Barbies and stuff, and he looked over at me and I was like smashing sticks against a tree and stuff like that. And he was like, okay, I mean, the, who, who, the, I mean they are different. Like, for sure. If you, yeah. had, I, you know, it's just last night I was at a, my buddy's wedding and we were talking and um, so he's got a daughter and a son and the daughter's older, has all the like the dolls, whatever. You take her to the store. She wants to get something. You go pick something out. She's going to pick a doll. The son comes along. All of her toys are already in the house. He could play with whatever. He doesn't want to play with them all. You know, he's yeah. doing like you yeah. did, going down to the forest, smashing sticks on things. The same thing, and it's not like uh, nurture versus nature. They're not nurturing them a certain way. They're like, look, we already got a bunch of toys. Go grab something to play. You're bothering me, man. Get busy. And he doesn't want to play with any of her toys. And it's, you don't know, we don't know why. You know, it's like it's just yeah. the way it is for some reason. But, uh yeah, yeah, I know it's me. So, so then um, bring this back to, so this bill, um, did they start like closing programs because of this? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, so, uh, you know, um, Title IX came out in 72, I believe. And so there's a few years of, I guess, like legal stuff. And then probably in the eighties, maybe when it started happening and, and really also over the course of the next coming decades, um, certain male sports got really decimated. Like I think percentage wise, uh, male gymnastics got the worst. I used to, at the time I kind of studied up on this because we actually, as a team, we uh, kind of protested it and we tried to lobby, you know, to save the team. Um, And uh, you know, male swimming and diving has gotten decimated and wrestling has also been really decimated. Like, you know, the state of Florida, for example, um, has great high school wrestling there's not a single uh, college program down there, as far as I know. Certainly not a Division One program. Um, here in California, there's very few Division One wrestling programs. You know, and decades ago, they 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 were in existence. So, um, so you they, know, it's it's a shame. But they just like so. What do they do? They they just cut the funding because there's not enough women doing it. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. I mean, so I think the probably the athletic director is kind of probably given a bunch of numbers and said, well, we got to make these equal out. And, you know, and so it's hard to cut a football program, you know, because you got all these tons of alumni, donors, and things like that. You're not cutting football, man. Right, exactly. Somebody else Basketball, baseball, you know, there's the more mainstream sports, which have much bigger following. And so those are obviously almost certainly going to stay. Um, but then you got the lesser ones you know like wrestling and swimming and diving gymnastics and stuff like that which are kind of the low-hanging fruit it's just the thing like i don't see how that helps anybody 
You know what I mean? Like, I think, like you said, the bill gets put in place at a time in the 70s. Like, I get it. Um, I talk to people like women who were in sport or sorry, were like in high school back in the 70s, 60s, 70s. And they said, um, not only were you, they not allowed to like be in jams and go for certain sports, but um, even taking certain schooling, like talking to my girlfriend's mom, and she's like, you know, like I had to be a teacher. I just was not allowed to go to university for certain things uh, because I'm a woman and that's just the way it was. So I get it at the time, like you said, there's a time and a place where, yeah, sure, you, you something's gotta give. But Absolutely. 2018, you know, we're way around the other side here. Um, it's not really like, you just closing down wrestling because it's, you know, it's not really like that. Like we know people gravitate towards different interests. How many little girls grow up and say, I wanna wrestle, I wanna join a wrestling team? You're gonna find some, but you're not like percentage, it's going to be a vast majority of fellas. So it's not necessarily fair to be like, we need 50-50. Like that's just no, right. that's not reality though, right? And it's like you said, you can't even say things like this. People get offended just by like talking numbers, right? Like yeah. there's gotta be a more realistic way of handling this. But uh, that's a shame. I think Penn State, I'm a big UFC guy. I don't know if you're into UFC. I think Penn State for wrestling, guys like Rashad Evans came through there. He's a UFC champion. And uh, Bellator guy went through there. Oh, jeez. Mr. Wonderful. Phil. Oh, Phil Davis. Yeah, Phil Davis. I think yeah. he was a wrestler. Yeah, so, Penn. Like, just well, some big-name so, dudes. Yeah, so well, Rashad, I believe he was actually Michigan State. Oh, wait, yes, um, he is Michigan. You're right, yeah. Um, actually, one of my uh, – did I freeze up on here? You froze, but I can still hear you. Okay, okay, cool. Um, actually, yeah, one of my teammates uh, wrestled Rashad in the um, NCAA tournament. Um, oh, no shit! That's bragging rights right there. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, and, um, you know, Phil Davis, actually, I'm, I'm a fan of his because, um, so yeah, so to answer your, your, your question, I have followed mixed martial arts since pretty much its inception. Um, Same. So, like, mid, mid-90s, basically, um, way before it became trendy and stuff like that. And then, you know, of course, that's one of the things that drove me while I was wrestling, you know, I was realizing, okay, this is a very effective yeah. uh, self-defense uh, system. And then I started doing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu as well. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, under, under Half Gracie, because uh, he, uh, he's... He has a he has an academy in San Francisco, which is where I did most of my training, um, and several other academies throughout the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. So so House was was you know um, my mentor there, uh, and then also this guy Kurt Osiander, known as the Rhino. Um, he was kind of the main instructor who, who mentored me. Um, then when I moved down to San Jose, I continued some of my training at AKA, which has a lot of you know, top fighters and. Um, Phil Davis, you know, this is a number of years ago, but Phil Davis would come through and train. And uh, it was funny because I remember we're in the locker room one day and Phil Davis looks over at me and goes, oh man, you know, you must be a wrestler. And, and I was like, you're Phil Davis. <laughs> like, like, you're, you're a wrestler. I mean, yeah, like, yeah. I, you know, I'm, I'm nobody. <laughs> um, but so like, yeah, we talked and he's a super nice guy. So, because yeah, I followed him absolutely. Like my, at Bucknell, both my coaches were Penn State alums, so we always heard about the Penn State program. I mean, it's just an hour north of Bucknell, so like, there's a lot of mutual connections there. And yeah, and Phil Davis, you know, 
killed it in college. I mean, four-time All-American, uh, national champion, all that stuff. So yeah. I knew all about him. Yeah, and um, so Kurt, was Kurt your head coach? Because I heard a podcast with Kurt, and he, he sounds like a wild man. He was drinking during this podcast, and my God, he's a colorful character. Let's say he's colorful. Okay, you're talking about Kurt Ossiander? Yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. So, <laughs> yeah, he Kurt, talking Kurt, about is awesome. Kurt is awesome. Being politically he, um, correct, he is not. <laughs> he, yeah, no, so he, yeah, he is awesome. Uh, he, um, you know, I started doing uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu under house in 2001. Um, so all the summers during college. And then I graduated in 05, came back and just kind of went full-time with the Jiu-Jitsu. And yeah, Kurt was always the main coach. I mean, he's like, he's a legend around there. Um, I'm, you know, I got a lot of great memories of him. Like, um, you know, he coached me at the Pan American Games. Um, I got a silver medal there. Coached me at the U.S. Open. I won that. I remember that. And he, you know, helped me a lot. Um, I did. I did an amateur fight, uh, and um, and he actually had to referee it. Um, oh shit! Wow. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah, and then and during the fight, I got I got kneed in the face. And my, my left uh, lower canine went through my lip. And, um, and you know, because the mouth guard really only covers your upper teeth. And so, so yeah, so my lip, my tooth went through my lip. And then after the fight, uh, uh, Kurt took me back to the, uh, the academy. I won the fight for what it's worth. But then we went back to the academy. And Kurt, I remember this because he, you know, he's not a doctor or anything like that. But he has all these, like, medical supplies on hand. Like, he feels like... Of course he him, does. I've seen him offer to, to give people sutures, like, in oh, training, you know, when their, their eyes are busted open. And people usually refuse it, but, like, he's yeah. ready to go. Like, he'll drain your ears for cauliflower, all that stuff. And so he uh, he glued my lip back together. He had the uh, the hospital-grade glue to, to seal up, like, cuts. Yeah, he also he, accidentally glued your lip shut. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I remember before he did that, he, he pulled out a bottle of Jack Daniels and we took shots and then, and then he glued my lip together. So. That's like straight up yeah. a Reservoir Dogs movie or some shit. The dog, oh, yeah. the, he pulls out a shot, one for you, one for me, kid, because I'm a little nervous myself doing this. <laughs> yeah, so no, I love that guy. You were way deep for anyone listening. Uh, yeah, Kurt is a hell of a character. He's He's been doing jujitsu from like the beginning, the way get-go, before it even got a big boom. Really? Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, he was with Hal. So he started when he was 27, and I think he's 50 now. So yeah. you know, you can do the math. Like. And he fought in MMA in his 40s, and like he's a wild yeah. man. Uh, he's, yeah, he's I super helped, popular on on I YouTube. Him I helped him train for those fights. Um, you did? Yeah. Yeah, because I was at the academy. I was kind of the the token wrestler. You know, we had obviously some great jujitsu guys. And some, you know, some decent stand-up guys. And we were kind of allied with a, a Muay Thai gym nearby that kind of handled the striking stuff. But I was like the, I guess, the most, like, touted wrestler there. Mm-hmm. So I was, that's kind of what, what led to me doing that, that amateur fight was that the guys, the top guys were getting ready to fight needed wrestling training. So I was like their sparring partner, especially for takedowns and stuff. And so I did that for a number of months and then, you know, found out there was this local amateur fight happening and they were like, Hey Andrew, you want to do this? And so I was like, okay, sure. And, um, yeah, so that's just kind of how that happened. So you were way deep in the jujitsu then. If you were doing, winning all these contests, the Pan Ams, um, also like in terms of, uh, powerhouses for, for jujitsu, anyone listening, obviously Brazil, 
US, you know what I mean? Like this is, like the Pan Ams is a major event internationally. So like, how, what was your belt rank when you, when you stopped jujitsu or have you stopped even? Oh yeah. I, so I stopped a while ago, unfortunately. Um, so, um, I had, so I had my blue belt for a long time and there was like a few times when I was like on the cusp of, I had won a tournament, you know, at blue belt, a big tournament. And so it was like, kind of, you would think, you know, purple belt's probably around the corner, but unfortunately at those times I just kind of, um, stop training because that was actually around when I started working a lot, you know, my, mm. my job and, and actually what, what led me to stop doing jujitsu was, and this is a whole other story, but so I was working for, a for the city down here. Uh, and I can, I can talk about my job more if you want, but, but there was a, the recession hit and they actually had layoffs and I got laid off from my job. And so, you know, it's not training at these uh, MMA places, jiu-jitsu places isn't cheap. And so I kind of basically had to kind of consolidate all my expenses. And, and so I cut that out and I always thought, oh, I'm going to go back to it. I'll go back to it. And it never happened. Um, and I just kind of focused on the, the weightlifting and, and stuff like that. So Yeah, it is not. Uh, yeah, it's not cheap at all. That's one thing about weightlifting. Um, in some gyms, I don't know what it's like around there, but... Um, I mean, their gym memberships up here, 15 bucks a month, you're good 24 hours, seven days a week, swipe the key, like 15 bucks is like a meatball sub at Subway. Like that's nothing, yeah. right? So yeah, that's not bad as opposed to like MMA um, or any kind of like jujitsu, whatever, it could be like 150, but you guys like health, uh, you know, and Kurt, who knows how much money that would be. It's, it's not cheap for sure. Um, yeah. But were you, how big were you when you were doing all the grappling? Um, yeah, so my weight, um, was somewhat all over the place. I mean, so basically I, excuse me, when I graduated high school, so my senior year in high school, I wrestled 189 in the 189 pound weight class. And I wasn't cutting much weight at all for that. So I was like 190. <laughs> I came to college and the story, the backstory is that every off season, so spring and summer, I always hit the weights really hard ate a ton, you know, and I always put on a few pounds of mass, you know, so it always add up. So I came to my freshman year of college about 195 and just the numbers where they were, the openings in the lineup and whatnot, um, I ended up going 174 weight class. So that was, a, and I was already very lean. So that was a major weight cut. I cut down to 174. Um, you know, then the next year I came in, weighing like 205, so I gained some more weight, and uh, I ended up just wrestling 197, and even wrestling some heavyweight matches because we had a, a hole in the lineup there. Mm-hmm. Then then, I, then my third year, I came in weighing about like 220, and so... <laughs> you get bigger and bigger, yeah. Exactly, yeah, I mean, that was just kind of the trend, um, and I wrestled 197 again, cutting, cutting weight down there, and then the next year, I redshirted, and then the final year, my fifth year, I was coming in about 240 and, and I just wrestled heavyweight, you know, not cutting any weight. And you, during this time, what was your weightlifting, what would it look like? Like, would you, um, A, like, like what were you doing, you know, squatting, deadlifting, and what kind of programming do you think you'd be doing? And maybe the numbers you'd be touching. And then B, could you do that throughout the season as well, once the season started? Because you get roughed up quite a bit. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, I mean... Um, so the first time I ever squatted, barbell squatted, I was, uh, 17. So that was actually back at the, the YMCA that I would go to 
in addition to, you know, high school because of the YMCA had more better equipment. And so there was a couple of the trainers there that kind of like, I would always, I probably annoyed the heck out of them, but they were great, great guys. And they would uh, just take me under their wing and, and show me stuff. And they taught me how to squat. So that's the one I started squatting. Um, then I was 18. I started deadlifting and I had been bench pressing from a long time before that, of, of course. course. Uh, yeah. Everyone bench press. <laughs> and, and so, um, numbers wise, the, my best recollection is, and actually I, on other podcasts I was talking about this, I, I keep a workout log. So actually I have sitting on this bookshelf, a workout log going back to, um, starting in my sophomore year in college. So, um, but I remember my, so my fourth year of college, um, the strength coach at that time decided to kind of test our maxes and put it on the board, like the top performances or whatever. And so of all the sports, um, and so I had the top squat, it was, uh, I think it was 565, um, and bench press was 400. Um, we didn't test deadlift. So it was, yeah, it was just power clean, uh, maximum dips, maximum pull-ups, max squat, max bench. So those were, yeah. So by the end of college, I was benching about 400. Squat was like mid fives. Deadlift. So my best deadlift, I still remember this specifically. I did 600 for a double uh, my senior year in college. So, yeah. And so when you wrestled, were you always like the, was there anybody who would meet, meet you like head on for strength? Or do you always oh, have the strength advantage? Um, Is there any big name guys too that you wrestled that we would know? Oh, guys, let's see. Um, let's see. Oh, actually, well, so um, there's a number of guys that wrestled who are, who are fighting MMA now. So, um, like, I don't know if you know Tom Waller. You yeah. know, you call it Filthy Tom Waller or whatever. Yeah. I think it's, he, uh, I wrestled him in college. Um, you go, who have, else? You, have you heard of Brock Lesnar? <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. Once yeah. or twice. So, I mean, so, Brock graduated. Is it Brock's? senior year in high school in college was my senior year in high school so uh, he had just finished when i came in and of look, course yeah, everybody was talking about him lucky for him right bud yeah i'm definitely a big fan of brock lesnar um just trying to think back on i did i never wrestled him in a match but i did uh train with with steve mako um and that was probably you know, one of the worst uh, ass kickings I've ever experienced. Um, he's doing, I think he's doing MMA now, actually. Um, but he, you know, he wrestled in the Olympics. I mean, he was, he was the real deal. Um, you know, just a monster. Um, so. And, and how, like, wrestling these guys and, this, and wrestling training, because it's so tough. Like, you know, in terms of um, the demands on your body, some people say it's even rougher on your body than actually MMA. You know, because oh, it's so. Yeah. Yeah, like that's common. It's, it feels like all wrestlers say, like, man, it's brutal. Um, how how did that help shape you? And then when you move into like something like powerlifting, how much easier is it to wrap your head around powerlifting than it was training for wrestling? Okay, yeah, and, and to answer it, you asked earlier and I didn't get to it. The like, yeah, I would always get weaker during the wrestling season. Oh, sorry, you know, that's that, right. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so that's. I mean, that was a given. I mean, it was just I knew it. Um, I, you know, my body weight would fall just from all the conditioning. Um, and cutting weight, you know, but even like when I wasn't cutting weight, like my senior year when I was a small heavyweight, I still lost weight. I mean, just cause from all the, just the, the training and, uh, yeah. And weight numbers always went down. We would still lift, but I mean, it was 
far taking a back seat to all the other stuff. So is it just um, your nervous system getting fried and like, cause it's so tough on your body. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, so, you know, your joints are hurting. So, I mean, some movements are just kind of painful to do. Um, you know, and it's just a matter of kind of triaging, you know, prioritizing, you know, you're, you go in the, in the weight room and you're thinking, you know, yeah, I want to like maintain some strength and some, some musculature, but this is not the most important thing. This is not as important as working on my double leg. You know, this yeah. is not as important as going live rounds over and over. So you kind of go maybe second or third gear as far as the intensity you know, in the weightlifting in season. And how much is that a different, like when you have that kind of, like everything you've been through with wrestling and all the all the training you've done and jujitsu and then fighting in MMA, when you sign up for like a boss of bosses and people are like, oh, you're, you're going into battle, you're thinking, man, this is light work compared to what I've been through. Like this is, you can wrap your head around a lot easier. Does it help for nervousness leading into like a powerlifting meet in terms of mental prep when you've been through all this? I think it does. I mean, so I've, and I've had, you know, a lot, a lot of people actually come up to me and kind of ask me, like, if I have advice for, like, dealing with the nervousness or stuff like that. Um, and I do my best to, to help with that. Actually, in college, I, I took two semesters of sports psychology. So, I mean, I kind of learned a lot about the kind of technical aspects of that stuff. But, yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of interesting. Yeah, I never, before a powerlifting meet, I never really feel nervous, you know. Um, but when I was wrestling or or doing jujitsu, any of that stuff, I, I did feel nervous. You know what I mean? So it's, it's just a different feeling. I think, I think a lot of it has to do with control, like in the sense of, you know, powerlifting me, you know, it's just me out there. You know what I mean? So it's really like I'm in control, you know, whereas if I'm going to wrestle someone, like I'm 50% of it. You know what I mean? The other person is the other 50% and I, you know, and that's way out of my control. So it's like, it's a little more nerve wracking in that sense. Mm-hmm. And um, in terms of the sports psychology that you had taken, what are some of the takeaways that you took from that? Like, did that help you improve in your sporting yourself? I think it did. Yeah. And what, I, what really sold it on me was I had, you know, this goes back to so San Francisco where I'm from, very weak wrestling. So pretty much everybody who goes past the high school level, we all know each other. And so um, I had a buddy from high school who went, went on to wrestling college and did phenomenally. And, but there was a big, a major switch. I mean, he was doing like, okay, but then he started just doing amazing. And I remember just talking about it and he actually, uh, recommended a a book on, on like mental, uh, preparation and sports psychology essentially. And, and so that's what made me a believer in it, seeing his progression. And so I think it's, you know, self-talk is a big thing. Like, we're all going to, everyone goes through self-talk, but it's a matter of kind of controlling it. And like, what are you telling yourself, you know, over and over and over, uh, visualization, hugely important, you know, to, you know, whenever you can visualize what you visualize performing at an optimal rate and take it as specific as possible. Like think of all the smells, the, the sights, the sounds, the, the feel, you know, all that stuff. Research has shown that that can improve performance in and of itself. Um, you know, another huge thing is when it comes to goal setting. So, you know, everyone knows about what, they don't know what it's called, but, but really is outcome goals. So like, oh, I want to bench 500 pounds or, you know, or I want to run a six minute mile, things like that. That's all well and good, but the research has shown that that's not as effective 
as setting what's called a process goal. You know what I mean? So the process goal is like the actual things you're going to do within your control to get to that outcome, not just choosing, oh, this is the outcome that I want. So, oh, I'm going to run the interval sprints three times a week. That's a process goal. You know what I mean? Or I'm going to, you know, I'm going to focus on tricep strength, you know, twice a week. I mean, so those are the more efficient goals mm-hmm. that lead to a better outcome. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I'm so in Canada, we had like, like Ben Johnson had a, a psychologist who was working with him. And then, um, and that was one of the first for us, that was in the eighties where we started hearing about like athletes working with like sports psychologists. And then um, I guess the Russians had were all like they're all, it seems like they're always like before us right but um yeah they they are ahead of the curve that's for they, sure they uh they had like sports psychology where um the Olympic weightlifters would like picture the bar like you said about like the smells go down to the arena step foot on the platform close your eyes and picture it and familiarize yourself and it's like they had a process of doing it so in the, and then um into uh, MMA fighting as well I read a book on um, some MMA fighters and they would do things like when you're in the peak of exhaustion and you're going to quit, they had certain, and Randy Couture talked in great length, a wrestler slash MMA guy, um, there's certain like, key words. So for him, it would be, I forget what he would use, if it was a word that was attached to you emotionally they would use or even a name, like say you said, like Randy, and it brought you to Randy Couture and brought like, what did he always say? It just brings you mentally back. So when you're in the middle of a match, dead tired, and you start doubting, like there's the worst, they say fatigue makes cowards of us all. And the Absolutely. worst thing you could feel, you rarely feel it in powerlifting, but for other sports, fatigue is huge. If you, it's right. basketball, hockey, whatever, you start getting tired and you're not gonna hustle down the rink to get the puck as much. You're, the little things, you start showing up a little bit, little concessions. And then when the whole team makes little concessions, you feel it, you know, and you see it in all sports, football, whatever, wrestling, one-on-one, you're just little mini concessions. And then you got to bring yourself mentally back. It's fatigue. Like you would ask, like, why would you do it? It's not like someone full out quits, but you can kind of see they're starting to flag a little. And, Absolutely. Um, yeah. And that's where sports psychology, they said, bring yourself back. Just a few key words why you started in the beginning. You know what I mean? Like bring yourself back to the hill sprints. What were you telling yourself when you're waking up at five in the morning? You know, get through this. It doesn't always get worse. Different different like little sayings. So yeah, sports psychology, 100%. I think in powerlifting, we're not, for us, it's not so much um, fatigue day of, but almost energy management. Um, Because a lot of guys will blow their wad real quick and girls, um, on the squats or and get too hyped up they're hyped up mm-hmm. stage, and it's like man you have only so much gas in the tank it's almost in terms of psychology managing your day so you you get up there you hit it but then come back down and relax because you can't stay yeah. for six hours you know have you noticed that yourself i have yeah i mean i think um and it ties in with you know you're talking about randy couture and some of the things he was saying you know a close you know cousin of that would be certain mental cues, you know what I mean? Like when, like say I'm squatting, you know, like one of the cues I use is like proud chest, you know what I mean? So like you're putting your chest out and proud, which is going to encourage you to really extend and, and uh, your thoracic spine, which is important so, so the bar doesn't pitch you forward, you know? So that's, um, 
you know, that's a cue where, you know, while it's not like helping me in a fatigue state, it is keeping me kind of mentally on point technique wise. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you're right. Like we're, um, you make little concessions when you're fatigued. We make little concessions when we're under load. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So those cues, yeah, 100%. And then it is also like when your handler comes in like a coach, sees it, he's got to be the one to be like, proud chest, because you almost don't even feel it. You start to oh, just, yeah. just give. And you don't know why you do that. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, those cues. So when you were grappling with guys doing BJJ, I know we're talking a lot about fighting, but uh, like this is a common interest. Oh, no, no. I geek out on this stuff. <laughs> yeah, always same, have. Same. Always will. So. But um, which, were you, when you were using uh, doing BJJ, were you using a lot of strength? Were they telling you <laughs> too much strength? Because it's weird. Certain sports, um, in terms of weightlifting, in terms of strength training for sports, some sports, they're like, like wrestlers are known to be big, strong guys. We talked about Brock Lesnar. No one's going to say it didn't help him. Flip side, they're like, that made him a fucking beast and you don't want to see him. Um, whereas I was training like as a powerlifter, strength sports, like strength conditioning with some hockey players. And there was some resistance. They were like, some of them were like, I don't know if weightlifting would help at all. But um, in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu just happens to be like, I think on the top levels, you see some guys damned if they don't look like they're bodybuilders. But, um, um, like, you know, you got the Gordon Ryans these days who are jacked up and in the gym all the time. But there are some old-school BJJ guys and, um, and other sports in general that don't think – they don't think weightlifting helps. You know what I mean? Or force output would help. Whereas you do have some people you would never think – like, there was, like, obviously sprinters do a lot of weightlifting. And Mo Farah, who's like a 1,500-meter, 15,000-meter runner – 115 pounds and he does powerlifting for his training. So some people, that's kind of breaking down. But did you run into that when you're doing jujitsu and, and stuff like that where they, they were kind of anti-strength? Um, so I don't I'm necessarily think anti-strength, but so when I first got into it, I was, you know, I don't, I don't think I was trained very smart. I was you trying to use my strength, you know what I mean? And, it, and it's, it's understandable, you know, because when you're, going live with someone and they're trying to beat you, you know, you're going to kind of use everything you have to beat them. Mm -hmm. But that ends up kind of uh, stunting the learning curve. You know what I mean? Where, yeah. you know, it's, it's best to kind of throw leave the ego at the door and really focus on the techniques you're, you've been learning. Um, and so I think that's something that actually did kind of stunt my progress in a sense is that, cause a lot of, you know, I could overpower pretty much everybody. And plus with the wrestling background, I could pretty much always get top position, um, you know, and, you know, and Howell and Kurt actually, they, they realized that too. I mean, so they, like they had told me, you know, you got to just work on, off your back be, to, before you promote, you know what I mean? Because like I was beating guys, you know, higher belt levels than me, um, just getting on top and, and, you know, I could get a Kimura, a key lock, also there was Americana, you know, certain strength things, I pretty good guillotine, you know, um, but they wanted me to really learn a uh, holistic, you know, jujitsu mm -hmm. and learn, you know, full guard, you know, half guard, escapes, all this stuff, um, submissions off my back. And as a wrestler, you hate being on your back. Like, mm -hmm. you, you never want to be on your back. So that was, like, definitely a conflicting kind of um, body mechanics. But um, it, so it actually took a few years, unfortunately, before I really kind of gave in to just – focusing on technique and, and, and avoiding using strength as much as I can. And I really wish I had 
adopted that mentality earlier. Yeah, like I can see how in training, um, so for training wise, in terms of like growing, for sure, you want, you gotta, if you, if you keep using strength, you can always overpower people, you always be in certain dominant positions for sure. But in terms of like, um, if you have that, all these different skill sets because you train off the back, whatever, strength's a nice thing to have in the back pocket when you go into a competition, you realize, I'm probably gonna get top side on you. I'm probably gonna take it if I want it, you know what I mean? As oh, a, absolutely. Yeah, as well, a, sorry. And I think an important, like, so with jiu-jitsu, you know, you've got the gi aspect and the no-gi aspect. And I think strength is less of a asset with the gi because the gi lends itself to so many more techniques, so much more kind of ability to constrain your opponent. You know, like you go to someone who's really good at getting certain grips and manipulating the gi in a way that ties you up, you know, as it, especially with a wrestling background where you're not, you're not used to that feeling it can really mess you up. Whereas, you know, no-gi is, a, you know, you're, you're sweaty, you're slippery, people can't just grab a hold of you, your lapel or your sleeve or anything like that. I think strength maybe helps a little bit more, um, but still, it always takes a backseat to technique in, in both styles. Who do you have for Conor McGregor versus Khabib? <laughs> um, so... That's tough. Well, I mean, I'm, 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 I'll be, I'm rooting for Khabib. Um, and as a, as a grappler, because his grappling background. Well, also because he trains out here in, oh, in San Jose. Oh yeah, sometimes. that's right. Yeah. He does so now. yeah. Yeah. So actually, it's uh, I haven't come across him. I mean, I stopped training at AK a, a number of years ago. But a buddy of mine who I uh, trained with there, I remember a few years ago, he was like, you know, hey Andrew, this this guy came in. He's freaking crazy good and and obviously no one else has a name like that so you tell me his name and i'm like oh yeah, yeah. and i remember that and so there's a, there are a lot of stories about him just being just a phenom down here so um yeah all things being equal I'll always root for the local guy um also i uh i'm a fan of really kind of the more uh i guess quiet humble uh champion as opposed to a you know, loud mouth, you know, talking smack, stuff like that. And that's, I don't hold that against Connor. I mean, I think he's obviously he's an incredibly talented fighter yeah. and he's done a phenomenal job marketing himself, you know, using that stuff so that it make tons of money. So, you know, he's laughing all the way to the bank for sure. But I just, that's just not kind of my preferred, uh, I don't know, personality. Yeah, it's, it is a bit of a yin and a yang with a guy like that. Like he's, he's one of the most famous people in the world right now, like athletic wise, at least. Um, it'd be hard to go to like any country who doesn't know who Conor McGregor is, certainly any fight fan anyways, made oodles of money, but on the flip side, you got to toe that line. I mean, even like the storming the bus with the trolley the whole night. I don't yeah. think, I don't think, um, so somebody was there, I think it was Max Holloway said, when he threw the trolley and it smacked that window and went through, everyone thinks he, he thought he was going to smack the window and not go through, but just rattle the window because... Those windows aren't supposed to be able to break like that. Mostly bus windows actually aren't even like glass or like a, like the same type of, you know, like inside of, of um, hockey rinks. Like that oh, kind yeah. of glass usually. So then when he went around, he grabbed the trash can that was metal, put it down, picked up the rubber one and threw it for the second one because he didn't actually want to break windows. So some people think the throwing a trolley was on purpose, not necessarily to go through the window and start cutting people. And he's a little shocked at that, but he'd already, at that point, you're not going to throw up your hands and say, sorry, you're pretty invested. Right. You're pretty invested at that point. Yeah, you got to Yeah, it is what it is. But um, do you think, like, do you, in terms of our sport, 
you know, it's funny. Sometimes guys like see guys like Conor McGregor, you know, with powerlifting, and they want to kind of like talk a little smack or be a little extra here and there. Do you think it's? Do you think we with with social media and some of our social media, like we have some people like I had Pitbull Torres from the Strength Cartel on here, and he was saying, you know, it's crazy. I have a hundred thousand, and he's actually pretty quiet and humble. But he was saying, yeah. uh, I have like a hundred thousand people on my Instagram. There are guys in the NFL with fewer Instagram followers than me. You got Steffi Cohen with like three hundred thousand, Larry Wheels three hundred thousand. So with our social media followers, we have. Do you think we have room for some characters like that, or what's your what, what do you think? It might not be for you, but do you see there's room for that, or or what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think it's fine. I mean, I I kind of take a, like a live and let live philosophy on a lot of things. So like, if someone wants to do that stuff, like it's all good, you know. Um, and but I think I don't know. I think people need to just remember that social media is what it is. Like it, like I think so too many people like think that the number of followers, followers they have is somehow reflective on their like value as a person, which it's not (laughs) at all. Like, um, you know, like it's in, and people, I think people have the distorted perception too, that say people with, you know, a million followers or whatever must be incredibly successful. No, you know, that's not the case. Like, uh, followers have no, there's no monetary value to an Instagram follower. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's kind of like a nothing thing really when it comes down to it. So people put a lot of stock in that stuff. Um, you know, I think it's just, it's kind of a distraction. It can be for sure. And, and you know, it's true. I mean, I know some people who have like massive followings and unless you have like, you know, some kind of business you're tied with it, but right. even, even then, it's not necess- it depends on how it's tied to it. It's not necessarily one-to-one ratio. It doesn't always fit. You know, uh, I mean, it's, it kind of really depends. Yeah, you can have people a fraction of your following, but they know how to maximize the following they do have to make some monetary gains from it because the following they have maybe is far more hardcore into it, um, you know, far more invested into what your, whatever content you seem to be putting out, where you could be far more mainstream million people but they're passing through and they don't really give too much of a shit so they're not really trying to buy anything you're selling because they're not really they're just it's almost like a passing by window shopping scenario so like you said it's it doesn't mean success necessarily certain doesn't mean it doesn't mean you know value of a human being or value of a lifter you see it all in powerlifting it's crazy how many followers some of us have though yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, and I, I don't, frankly, I don't understand really how it happens, uh, seeing just the, the massive variation, yeah. disparity among lifters, I mean, but, uh, you know, I, for some reason, the uh, person that comes to mind for me is like, like Sean Doyle, you know, like, I mean, one of the best, you know, heavyweight lifters around, and I don't know if he's even on social media, or if he is, it's, you know, very small follow. you know what I mean, it's yeah. a, it doesn't, there's definitely, like, not a direct correlation between, like, performance and followings. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, look at look at Brad Castleberry. I mean, <laughs> you know, like. Yeah, no, um, for sure. It, I don't know either. Like, um, I see a guy, like, there, there are IPF lifters, multiple-time world champions, floating around under 10,000, so, yeah, under 10,000 followers. And then you'll have people who are, like, national champions, but. They, they could have like a hundred thousand and, and you don't necessarily like 
the weights lifted if you want to watch or advice given could be way more quality but they just I don't know what it is I'm not sure a part of it is aesthetics because yeah. you know you're a dude who's bodied up or you're a girl who's bodied up people just gravitate not even because of the opposite sex but guys want to follow guys who they want to look like girls yeah. the same girls the same right so like you idolize them and you aspire to like when you grew up wanting to be like Arnold I was the same deal I grew up I'm a few years older than you, but I came through the same era. Arnold Schwarzenegger was the guy. And so that's why you're like, oh, man, you want to be like Arnold lifting weights or whatever. But I think to a point, that's a bit of it. Also, um, I think some of these people, they like are on social media like every day in their stories and everything. Yeah, it's it's definitely, I mean, to some extent you, you get out of it what you put into it, you know, like. You know, like Larry, Larry Wheels, I mean, you know, he's, we're friends, you know, I like the guy, um, you know, and, and everyone knows, I mean, he's just constantly putting out the, you know, 1999 six-week yeah. workout program, <laughs> link, link in bio, blah, 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 blah. I mean, yeah, and so it's like, I don't know, humans aren't, you know, that different from other, you know, kind of animals. I mean, we are animals, you know what I mean? So you keep kind of poking, you know, the same thing over and over and over, like, I mean, it works, and it's free. You know what I mean? It's not like TV advertising where you have to pay for it. I mean, it's free advertising, yeah. so why not just constantly do it? Yeah. Well, yeah, for sure. I mean, a lot of times, um, well, that's what they're, – they're like influencers, right? So when nowadays, like the game has basically changed for marketing in terms yeah. of um, who you go to. You could go to try to get like a minor celebrity or, or whatever and pay X amount, but you have guys like Larry Wheels, and he's got like almost half a million followers, and if it's like the fitness – it, that's your core target market right there. So why would you go anywhere else, right? Like you put money in a magazine or you go to like a guy like Larry Wheels or, or whoever, right? So yeah, 100% uh, social media has changed the game. At least some people could get paid. I don't know how much like some of these guys are making, but there are some money events you guys are into now though. The US Open oh, and... Yeah. So how did you end up um, going... So going back on, on your storyline here, uh, when you were a grappler, how did you end up? Did you find Dane Green? Was he the beginning in terms of powerlifting, or how did you end up finding powerlifting? So, okay, so it it and other I guess strength sports, strongman, bodybuilding, things like that, had always been kind of in the back of my mind. Like I knew about it. I mean, I would occasionally buy like Flex magazine and stuff like that. So, um, you know, so I had some working knowledge, I guess, of those things, um, but. The real like heavy involvement uh, came maybe six months before I started training at Boss Barbell, and so it was. I was in kind of you could call it like a competitive lull in my life, basically where I had stopped doing jujitsu, um, and I was just lifting, kind of spinning my wheels, just going to the gym, lifting, and with no purpose really, other than just that I liked doing it. And it was at a commercial gym. And uh, a few guys at the gym would, you know, come talk to me and say, oh, you know, you're pretty strong. Like you should, uh, have you thought about powerlifting? And, and so they, you know, day after day, you know, would talk to me about it and educate me and eventually talk me into doing a meet. Um, so I did that meet and that's kind of, that's the turning point basically. Like, so I trained for a couple months going into the meet because I was like, I want to like do okay, <laughs> you know, and like, I mean, I had to, I'd never, I need to learn the commands, you know, just all the basic stuff, you know, to even to not get disqualified. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the meet went great. I mean, I had like a really good time and I enjoyed it. And so that really just changed everything right there. And so, um, 
and that it coincided at the same time with, um, I guess Dan was, had started his gym and was starting to build that name. And so the same folks who had been educating me about powerlifting were like, Hey, have you heard of Dan Green? Have you thought about training with Dan Green? Stuff like that. And, you know, I said, Oh, I'll try it out. You know? And so I went, visited, liked the gym, liked him, you know, and, uh, I joined and, and, and that was it. What year was this around? This was okay. So my first competition was February of 2014. And I believe I joined boss like April of 2014. So a couple so, months later. So he was at this time, was he uh, the world record holders in, in, cause he had a couple world record divisions. Like was this the height of Dan Green? Yeah. Uh, competitively. Yeah. I think that was. So I think at that time, I think he had, like all four of the raw total records for 220 and 242. So wraps, sleeves, both weight classes, both total records. And, you know, so like very, you know, clearly like dominating that section of uh, like size. In, for ter- first. in terms of um, Dan Green, it's funny. We're talking about like social media and like Dan is the guy who on Instagram follows nobody. <laughs> yeah. Posts very little but people are so captivated by Dan Green. You know, I don't know what it is, yeah. his hair, or the fact that he looks <laughs> like he walked off of a, of a comic book, or, or he was so utterly dominant. And I'm watching him lift, you know, he's so jacked up, and he looks like the Incredible Hulk when he's lifting, crazy hyped up. Uh, but people are just, like, there's a, just drawn to him, in spite of the fact that he gives a shit not about social media. Right? Like, he, he follows right. me, doesn't care about doing cameos or giving shouts out to people or trying to network. He's just like, I'm gonna post a video, it is what it is, uh, if you like it, cool. And then people are all over. Yeah, yeah, I mean that, and obviously that kind of flies in the face of earlier when I said, you know, you get out of it, what you put into it. It's I mean, an anomaly, it's, it's an anomaly. Kind of a, yeah, definitely an anomaly there. Um, what's, yeah. he, what's he like when you met? Because very few people know, what's Dan Green like when you met him? And, and now that you know yeah so he um is i mean he's pretty uh i guess reserved you know what i mean like he you know he's at the gym a lot obviously i mean that you know he owns the gym and runs it and trains people out of it so you know and he like he's not like a flashy emotional person you know what i mean like he's pretty like composed and just kind of like even keel um and yeah at times you say he's like quiet, I guess, but he's, but when he, certain topics that he's into, you know, he, he is very enthusiastic and, and willing to talk about them. You know what I mean? And so like, you know, obviously powerlifting, you know, he's got so much knowledge and experience there and he loves it. He's passionate about it. You know what I mean? So you start talking to him about that, then he, he starts talking about it. I mean, he's also, he like, yeah, he used to play baseball, you know, he, I think he follows baseball. He's a Giants fan. And so we'll talk about baseball, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, and he's very um, forthcoming with uh, information, you know, like, so, like, it's not like there's a secretive, like, oh, the, the Dan Green method, you know, I'm not going to tell you unless you do. No, I mean, he, he'll, like, give you information, like, there's, there's no, like, ulterior motive, like, it's, it's pretty cool. So when you started uh, training with Dan, like, that, is that the, really the type of coach that you, you're looking for? Like, because he, is he the type of guy, so he does all your programming, is that right? No, um, so uh, nobody's ever done my programming, just oh. me, basically. Uh, yeah, I um, and 
I don't know. I've always thought about maybe trying to have someone do my programming. I don't know. I just, I've been a student of the game for so long. I mean, I've, I've read lots of books and magazines and different websites and stuff like that. Like, I feel like I have a pretty good, like, knowledge base I've developed over the years um, and kind of know my body pretty well. So, like, I mean, yeah, I, I quote unquote do my own programming, but that's borrowing information from a lot of different sources, Dan being the biggest source, you know what I mean? Like I will consult him about different exercises I do, different, you know, how many sets, reps, things like that. So, I mean, he definitely plays a part in it. Um, but it's not like, I don't, I wouldn't say I don't officially follow a program by him or by anybody else. The biggest thing that I've, so I've done a little bit of both. Um, and I found for myself, like the hardest part when it comes to me training and me doing my own programming is I like, if, if I don't have someone putting me in check with the numbers I'm using, I could easily burn myself out and leave my best in the gym before I get to the meet. Cause with yeah. somebody else, um, you know, it's easy to be like, Hey man, the bar speed slowed down quite a bit, you know, like, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, so it's easy, but when it's yourself, you're like, nah, I'm okay. Nah, I felt a little, like, you know, you're like, you have like set, you have romanticized views of numbers and you're so set with these numbers. You're like, I need to hit this, that, and the other or else it doesn't translate on the platform. When really, you know, bar speed, velocity, like if you actually, like a lot, so many people I have on here and how many times they'll say like, I had some meat prep, the numbers weren't super high, but the day of it came together. Like if you overthink the numbers you're going to use, you know, it's, it's more important to like manage your energy levels, et cetera. And it gets tough when it's yourself, you know, cause you, you fall in love with certain numbers. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and that's what you're saying is the same reason why I am starting to you know, consider, you know, outsourcing, I guess my, uh, like programming. I mean, because, you know, I think I was maybe like spoiled a little bit in my first meets, they all went really well. I mean, a few of them, I went like nine for nine, you know what I mean? And it was, you know, hitting my, meeting my gym best, you know, stuff like that. And it's kind of like, you know, you do that and you think, oh man, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah. But then, you know, I've gotten stronger and at a point, I mean, like the last of me I just did, Boss of Bosses 5 was like, as far as comparing my performance to my training was the worst I've ever done. And, um, you know, so it makes me kind of ponder, you know, like maybe I'm at the point where I do need kind of that, an outside influence directing me and not just going by my own, you know. Yeah. Because yeah. it it, it's not even like a, like a technical things or anything like that, but if nothing else, somebody who just looks at the data, no emotional attachment at all and says, these are the numbers you got to hit. Or, or just looks at the video and they kind of know, right? Or, Absolutely, yeah. Or, or if Dan, an, object, an objective perspective is, one, is very yeah. valuable. Yeah, or or if it's like someone live right there, like, I mean, you have the opportunity, you got like a Dan Green right there where uh, they could tell you, hey, um, what are some of the things that, what does your programming look like? Because your, your gym, we love posting you on King List because do your, <laughs> some of your lifts are phenomenal. Uh, you're, you're moving some huge numbers. So what, what are some of the things, like what does your program look like when you're running into a peaking? Um, so I, you know, I definitely have, it kind of starts around a squat day, you know, like I, and it's always, you know, low bar squats, you know, like I, I'm not a fan of the like 
do different movements and then hopefully it'll translate into a good low bar squat. Like I have to be low bar squatting at least once a week. Um, so there's that. And then from there I have my main accessory movements, which would be like high bar pause squats or front squats. And then, then I'll throw in, you know, um, some quadricep exercises to kind of round it out. Um, I like to have two, for the most part, I do two days a week that are uh, pushing, you know, so you call them bench days, but, you know, also to have, you know, shoulder press, triceps, um, you know, chest specific exercises as well. Um, and then, you know, one day that's like a, um, a deadlift day, but I kind of go back and forth. Sometimes I, I do, I don't like, so I don't like to just do like a heavy conventional deadlift week after week after week. I found that I think that's kind of too much. Um, so like I'll try and put some variety in like before this last meet, I would like one Friday come in and just do like a, a slight deficit, you know, and then different accessory stuff. And then the next week I would do regular conventional, you know, and so it was like alternating there. Um, do you do also any pause, the, do you do pause dance? Pause is I do, yeah. So, and that's something I, I got from Dan, you know, um, and I really liked it. Um, I like it as kind of a finisher um, because I feel like it gets a lot of blood flow into your spinal erectors. And actually, you know, what I've noticed is anecdotal, but like I feel like I recovered better, you know, from the heavy deadlifts. You know, if I did some pause deadlifts afterwards, and I would think attribute that to just getting all the blood flow in there. Um, yeah, so I do like those. I like a lot of variations. I mean, you know, high deficit, low deficit, pause. Um, every now and then I'll do bands. Um, yeah, so, yeah. And do you do, do you like doing like a lot of volume? You know, I was talking to like Kevin Oak and uh, he was talking about with um, his training with himself, Larry Wheels. They'll often work up to like one big and wrap. And his main is they can't quit before failure, and that's really their goal for whether it's squat dead or what have you. So how many days a week do you train? And do you like volume or do you like working up to triples, doubles? What's kind of your take on that? I know a lot of times people periodize it, but um, leading up to it like a peaking. So, okay, so uh, as far as days per week, you know, I train four to five days per week. For a while it was four, basically two lower body, two upper body. Um, the last few months I started to incorporate one day that was really just like upper back stuff, you know, pull-ups, rows, and some bicep stuff, you know, just those muscles. Um, the, the volume versus, you know, intensity thing. I, uh, I kind of, so the closer I get to a meet, the more I do the, you know, ramping up to some kind of top set. Whereas further out from a meet, so like say here's an example. So say really close to a meet, I want to work up to like a heavy triple. And so then I may, you know, all of my top, my bottom sets rather, or, you know, a lot of reps just to really warm up and stuff like that. One plate, two plate, whatever. Um, but then as it, at a certain point, I'm just doing singles just to ramp up to that top set where now yeah. I'm going to go for the triple or whatever, or AMRAP it, whatever. Um, now take that back a month or so, so further out from the meet, I'd be doing triples all the way up. So, you know, 
more volume uh, um, gotcha. to keep more cumulative volume, you know, getting there and maybe sacrificing a little bit on that top end, but I think it's worth it. So yeah, I just kind of like taper down the volume as I get closer to a peak for a meet. So the goal is always, I guess it is kind of like Larry and Kevin Oakden. So the goal is always that one top set. And then you hit that, uh, whether you're working up to it month out and you're doing triples all the way up to that top triple or um, closer to it, you get your volume warmed up, hit a couple singles to get the weight on your back, but you're staying fresh, hit that top. And that's really your big goal for that session? Yeah, and, and that is something though that I do kind of rethink. Uh, you know, like, like I, you know, for, as far as the CNS perspective, you know, do I want to be going to that, you know, RPE 9, RPE 10 that often, you know, and I know a lot of people, a lot of very good lifters don't do that. And I think there may definitely be something to it. Um, so I don't know. I'm actually, I'm kind of, kind of re reconfiguring a lot of my, uh, training philosophy right now. Um, but at the same time, the, you know, the mental component, I mean, I like to, set a PR for in some way, shape or form, you know, and that gets back to my workout log. So, I mean, whether it's a set of eight, you know what I mean? They are far out, you know, in the off season doing volume and I want to do, you know, a few pounds more for that set of eight, or I want to do that same weight and get nine reps, you know, or, you know, even on an assistant, heck, on, you know, glute ham raises, if I want to, you know, get one extra rep, I mean, just something kind of to mentally, feel like okay I made progress yeah, yeah. I know exactly what you mean and it's so tough as powerlifters were so dominated by numbers and yeah. um, I know what you mean we're like in the in the preps you need you need some PRs the thing is like eventually you start um, I wonder what the ratio is in terms of like hitting PRs if they always tr if it translates or if sometimes you know there's other factors you got to try to chase like it's tough because everyone's different and obviously, you've broken world records in totals. So it becomes one of those other flip sides where it's like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But then yeah. on the flip side, eventually your training numbers are going to get ridiculously heavy because uh, your training numbers are ridiculously heavy. Like you're incredibly strong. So then it becomes, you know, how do you make it, um, okay, go for this weight and sustain triples for five sets and you haven't done that before as opposed to a top weight and it's easier, you know, I mean, these are, I guess there's different ways of trying to, you know, jig it around, but uh, it is, it's a bit of a dicey game, isn't it? Cause you don't want to reconfigure too much. Cause it's right. you know, it's there, you know, oh, that's, yeah. that's the tough part. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, to some degree it's kind of, it is rolling the dice. I mean, I think yeah. there is, it's not mathematical. I mean, there's not like, one plus one equals two. It's not like factually known that you know this is the way to improve. It's I mean, not we're, that we're all still we're all still guessing, you know, yeah. when it comes down to it. Yeah, especially with like individuals, because um, I've so training with myself and then training with other people. I've seen so many um, like people respond so differently, and that's why oftentimes if you end up working with a coach, you know, the first few times, yeah, I know with myself like or like when I get a coach, so I get I coach and I also get a coach. Uh, purely because like we talked, I get too emotionally attached to numbers, but I always want to collect data, spreadsheets, and then so I could, I could see myself, the numbers they did, and what they hit on that day, and then I could kind of see if 
the numbers are coming back and it's like, whoa, hey, we're getting a little carried away here. You know, historically speaking, I know, I know yeah. you do that already with yourself, so you track. Um, and that's what's best with like, like obviously if you got someone you could snowball with like with Dan Green, for instance, he's been with you long enough, he knows, look, this works. This does yeah. whatever, right? It's uh, it's so important to stay with someone over some time so they get to know you. And, and Oh, definitely. Yeah, and when you're training yeah. yourself, it's tough to give it to someone else because who can know you like you know yourself, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, that, there's the dilemma right there. I yeah, mean, yeah. You, you do you start totally fresh with like a Chad Wesley Smith, who's good, but he doesn't know you know what works best for you. Yeah, uh, man. I mean, well, in that you know, for I mean, for me, you know, um, I would I would go to, to Dan, you know. Um, yeah. Sounds but uh, but for someone you know who's not like affiliated with a gym or a person like that could be the hard thing too like because there's a lot of really good folks out there you know Chad Wesley Smith of course you know Brandon Lilly like Chris Duffin I mean you know yeah. Dan Green like there's just I mean there's a lot of there's a lot of good coaches out there so um, and but like you said also it's important not to get like program ADD you know what I mean like oh I'll do the program for four weeks now I'm gonna go here jump from coach to coach like you know no, no 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 like consistency is is like one of the most if not the most important things no matter what you do so yeah I agree I mean there's a there there is the flip side there's we're out of time there's like like it could be a goal there for powerlifting um open powerlifting uh the Instagram page they put out stats and some are pretty interesting they were showing how many powerlifters over the past five years, it, like, not even, it's exponential growth. Like, yeah, <laughs> exponential yeah. growth we've seen. And um, so it's a golden era in terms of, like, how much talent is around, how many people are watching. And the level of coaching and information sharing is, like, nothing we've ever seen. It's instantaneous. You got a problem? Google it. You want, you want a <laughs> high-level coach? You can have Dan Green. You could literally message Dan Green from freaking China. You know, send them videos and get critiques. It's phenomenal. On the flip side, anybody can get Dan Green or anybody can get Steffi Cohen. And it's so tempting. Who's the hot person this week? Like this last right. last last year, everybody's all Steffi. Or this year, everyone's all Steffi. But, um, you know, two years before, like, or this year, Larry Wheels. Last year, Steffi. Two years before that, Dan Green. You could jump from whoever's the hot coach every year but then you're like, like you said, if you get the coaching ADHD where they, they don't get to know you and get to like tinker with things, you know, or in even yourself. And sometimes it pays to just stay with somebody and work it out. Yeah. Um, for what it's worth, it says poor network connection. So I don't know. If we're, I, 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 I can still hear you. You're just popping. There you go. There you go. We're good. Okay. Um, yeah, just a quick note on, you mentioned open powerlifting. Um, I mean, so the guy who runs that trains at Boss Barbell. Like, oh, I know, does he? Um, I love that site. We were just, we were plugging it last episode. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's one of these funny things where, so his name is Sean, um, and he's, he's a pretty quiet guy. I mean, he doesn't like put himself out there a lot, but, uh, he's actually strong as hell. Like he, uh, I think he competes, you know, 198 and I mean, his bench is near like 500. Like it's. Whoa. Yeah, but no, yeah, you know, it's, um, it's funny. Yeah. I mean, he's been a boss for, since before I even came and, uh, actually him and his wife both, uh, train there. Sarah is her name and they both compete and, uh, yeah, they're good people. Yeah. He, um, I love the stats he puts out. Uh, you know, we were talking just the last, last episode 
we're about how like oftentimes you know people beat themselves up and they say like you know I haven't improved as much as I would like and then you take a look at some of these numbers and it shows like the percentile of women in this division or men in that division who actually deadlift X amount and yeah. you look like holy shit I'm in the top five percentile in the world and it's like oh, you, some people don't know like do you realize how good you are just Relax, you're pretty good. You don't have to know. And that's of power lifters. If you think about human beings walking the face of the earth, we're talking top one percentile. You know, sometimes yeah. people don't PR every single meet. They want to go throw themselves off a bridge when it's like, man, <laughs> it's uh, you know, it's a little, it's tougher than that sometimes, right? Yeah. And yeah, definitely. Oftentimes too, um, I tell people, you know, a, a powerlifting meet sometimes it's a sample size of one day. That's a bad sample size to decide if you've gotten stronger. You could get a whole lot stronger over the course of six months. One day doesn't vindicate whether or not you got stronger. You got stronger, there's just other variables on that one day because it's a sport, so that's how she goes. But it doesn't mean you're regressing or not progressing. You know, that's that's for sure. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a very good way to put it. You know, yeah, it is, you know, a blip on the, uh, on the graph, so. It really is, it really is, yeah. Listen, um, uh, one quick question, a question that we always ask everyone, whoever we have on this podcast, uh, when all is said and done, okay, you've already broken world records and uh, made your footprint on the game, but um, when it's all done and you retire and you look back, how would you like to be remembered? Um, it's, I've actually never thought about that, That's so, uh, so I'm hopefully not going to botch this. Um, you know... Um, I don't know. I mean, I think the bottom line is there's things in this world that are more important than lifting weight. Um, and so I'd like to be remembered more in reference to those things, you know, than just strength, you know, numbers, you know what I mean? So I'd like to be remembered as a good person. Um, and I'd like to be remembered as someone who kind of, um, demonstrated like, good characteristics, you know, like, uh, work ethic, humility, um, you know, compassion. I mean, things like that. And, you know, kind of whatever the numbers are, whatever the numbers are, you know? Yeah. Well said, sir. Well said, you know, not enough people probably say things like that. When I ask that question, most people are like the goat for deadlifts or something. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah. yeah, well said. Is there anybody you want to, you want to thank? Uh, and also how people can get a hold of you on social media if they want to follow. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, well, first of all, I want to thank you and King of the Lifts. Thank you, sir. I mean, I mean you guys are great. I like the, this opportunity is great. And the, the stuff you put on Instagram, always great. I'm always honored whenever you put my stuff on there. So thank you very much. You. Um, you know, Boss Barbell Club, that's the gym I train at. Uh, Dan Green. Um Sparkle Green, although I think she said she didn't want me to mention her in social media or something like that, but, you know, she's, she's great too, you know, I apologize if I wasn't supposed to say that, um, like, yeah, I mean, that's the, that's the place, you know, um, I, you know, I couldn't do what I do without them, um, Animal, you know, I'm sponsored by Animal, uh, I can wear an Animal shirt right now, like, you know, they've, they've done great, you know, uh, for me, uh, you know, I use all kinds of their supplements, and, you know, something I would say to other people, like, you know, when it comes to supplements is if you're into powerlifting, kind of think about, and you're looking at for a certain product, think about which company is supporting the sport you like, you know what I mean? Like, 
And there's a few, I'm not saying Animal's the only one, but like, I don't think there's any company that sports, supports more powerlifters or has supported powerlifting as long as Animal. So like, while there's like 50 different types of whey protein powder out there and they're all kind of the same, you might want to go with Animal, you know, because they're supporting the sport more than yeah. the other you know companies. What? That's true. How many of these guys are eating off of us powerlifters, but how many are giving back? Watching yeah. the sport grow. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And if people want to get a hold of you on social media and watch you train and etc. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and just one last thing, also Halo Sport, the headset I wear, I, they you know they support me and and they're actually building out some new stuff, uh, some new technology to kind of enhance brain functioning. For me, um, I'm on social media wise. I'm on Facebook and I'm on Instagram. Instagram is the main thing. So I'm Kirby the Love Bug, uh, and the love is spelled L U V. So Kirby the Love Bug. Um, my name is Andrew Herbert. Um, and so that's like on Facebook, that's my name. Um, I try and answer DMS uh, as much as I can. Um, and yeah, I'll do my best, you know, to get back to you. And I appreciate the support from everybody. It's been, uh, really, uh, humbling for me. So thank you. Thanks for coming on, buddy. You got a good story. Uh, I love, I love the uh, personality you bring. I think we need more positive people like yourself and I'd love to have you back, sir. Thanks, I'd love to be back. I really appreciate it. Perfect. Good luck with training, man. Keep in touch. All right. Thank you, sir. See you later. Bye. Well, that was a good, po- that was a good podcast right there. You know, we have um, – he is such a humble guy. I mean, you can't judge a book by its cover. You see a guy like Andrew, dude is legitimate beast. Um, and if you just go by the videos, the intensity he brings when he's weightlifting – but, uh, yeah, man, if you actually stop to talk to him, humble, approachable, as nice as a guy as you're going to meet, and that is the type of dude that you want to be an ambassador for the sport or, uh, I mean, obviously your brand, like if it's an animal. Um, but, yeah, and I, Frank, man, the fact that he's got, like, a fighting background, Jesus, can you imagine if somebody rolled up on him trying to smug him for his wallet? Wowzers. Um, no, thank you. But uh, by all means, everybody, listen. Again, I say it, give us, uh, you know, the replies, give us the high ratings, tell your friends, share it on your Instagram stories, appreciate the sport. He was saying it best, back the people who are giving back to the sport. A lot of people take, a lot of people want to grow their own Instagrams, etc. Back the people who are giving back, we're trying to give back as much as possible, tell as many stories as possible, other people's stories, and push our stars ahead, so please help us out by spreading the word of the podcast, spreading the word of the Instagram page, and give all the support you can. Until next time, it is Six Pack Lapidat, signing off.